0: Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Bombas, a great place to get cool, creative, and above all, comfortable socks. Go to getbombas.com slash weekend to get 20% off your first order. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're talking about gaming frustrations, both positive frustrations and really annoying negative ones. So, I thought of this topic because I have been playing something that I think has really wonderful frustrations in it, and really annoying and negative and terrible frustrations in it, Uh, and that game is The Last Guardian, which, if you don't know, was a game uh, from the team, team Ico folks, people who made Shadow of the Colossus and Ico, Ico, however you pronounce it. Uh, it's been in development for nine years or something ridiculous, finally came out a couple of weeks ago, and it's this sort of grand-scale adventure puzzle, you know, sort of very atmospheric adventure puzzle game with a you know, sort of minimalist story and beautiful animation. He plays this little boy... Who wakes up next to a giant, like massive oh. dragon, cat, <laughs> dog, bird sort of creature, and you kind of have to guide this creature uh, through this world of puzzles, and uh, you cannot directly control the creature.
1: Uh oh! You can
0: you can directly control the boy, but not the creature.
1: Always a dangerous design uh, <laughs> design decision.
0: <laughs> yeah, the thing the thing is, I sort of went into this game you know, my girlfriend uh, who has really good taste in games and movies and TV and is the reason why I watch so many good things as well as play so many good things, uh, kind of said, look, I've heard the highs are high and the lows are really low. <laughs> and uh, she was right. She's, you know, kind of always right. It's kind of the truth. Um, and uh, the, the weird thing is it's not what I expected. I expected to be very frustrated by the sort of indirect control over the the creature, over Trico is uh, the creature's name. I, I expected to be really frustrated by that, but instead I actually really like the indirect control over, over it, them, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's actually really cool. It behaves just like my dog or my cat does. You know, it kind of, like, it gets into things. It wants to go smell things and chew things and, and kind so of I, do stuff like that.
1: Yeah, give me an example here because what I'm imagining is sort of like the infuriating, uh, like, <laughs> teach your pet to do things from like black and white, which was just like an awaking nightmare. Like, give me an example of something you need <laughs> uh, your, w- w- Trico? Is that the, yeah. the thing? Okay. Yeah, Give me an example of something you need Trico to do <laughs> and how you like, Get Trico to do it.
0: Yeah. So there's an early puzzle that, it, that was pretty good, and it sort of ties into a later puzzle that's horrible, uh, which ties into the bad things about this game. So uh, I like the indirect control thing in a general scheme because it's just like having a pet, and it's actually really cool. I like that it kind of has a mind of his own and or her own, whatever their own, and that they're kind of getting into things. So there's one type of puzzle where there's a thing that smells interesting to Trico. And Trico will always try to get into it. So you have to learn how to, um, you know, sort of guide the critter to go to a certain... It's like this all takes place in this sort of crumbling castle ruins that are sort of overgrown. It's very pretty and mystical and all this stuff. Uh, You have to guide Trico to kind of go through one hole in in the castle Mm. by putting... Sort of shifting over this barrel of, of nice smelling stuff that it just always wants to smell and sniff. So you, you kind of guide them along with that. Which is really cool. I was like, oh, this is clever. This is how a pet actually acts. They never do exactly what you want them to do, but you can definitely guide them if you know what you're doing. If you know your pet well enough, you know, you can kind of bait them away with a treat, basically. Or, or sort of bait them towards something with a treat. So that's really cool. The main problem with this game, the bad frustration with this game, is something that they really could have fixed. They really, really, really could have done something about this, and this is the... Oh, God, just tearing my hair out part. The boy, the the boy that you actually have direct control over, controls like a walrus on rusty ice skates. It's just the fucking worst like he gets stuck on level geometry all that he just sticks to things in a really awkward way when you want him to climb up Trico, he constantly is going in the wrong direction i've gotten stuck in Trico's butthole more more times than i can count because he's (laughs) just
1: a hell of a chuck tingle novel by the way yeah
0: i'm telling you it's (laughs) this is the real x-rated story right here is i almost said shadow of the colossus Uh, is the last guardian you know, it's just he controls so poorly, and you know, I feel like the justification for that is like, oh, it's a bo- it's a young boy. He wouldn't be this like amazing athlete. He's not Lara Croft or or Nathan Drake or anything, but he climbs really well. It's like this kid, <laughs> it's like this kid can climb like a master rock climber, but walking is a huge challenge. For th- it's just oh. It's so frustrating. So, so you're, you've got a kind of system where you're solving these puzzles. You know, you're, you're guiding your sort of animal companion to do a thing. And that's fine that that's indirect control. But when you're having such a hard time moving your own fucking character to the place to start baiting the other character to do a thing, it's just a comedy of errors. And it's so frustrating. I'm stuck on this puzzle right now where I know what the solution is. I know what to do. It's just doing it is oh, it's it's so bad. It's so frustrating. I had to turn the game off the other night because it was just driving me insane. And I was playing with friends. I had my girlfriend was was around and we had a friend over and we were just laughing at this game at like the amount of times I like clipped into a wall and couldn't move, and the amount of times that I got stuck on something. It's just like really. Did you QA this at all? Like, did you think this was going to be the experience? Because the experience, I see what the experience should be. But man, <laughs> the game just needed another, like, six months in development. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm going on and on about this one game. But I, I felt like this is definitely something I've experienced to some degree uh, in the past. Like, games that have systems that are frustrating in a good way, that actually, like, have story value or have, you know, something to them. Like, it's it's purposely frustrating in some way. Yeah. And that's a good thing. But also balance that with, like, no, actually, this part was stupid and you didn't do your job. <laughs> you didn't do this properly, developer.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you really touched on something when you mentioned that, like, where you're currently stuck, you have a puzzle or a situation where you can, like, clearly see what, you're supposed to do, but the game is making actually executing on that basically impossible. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is, I don't know. I think that's more of an issue in like a strategy game or a uh, like or a puzzle game where the challenge is entirely intellectual, and once you've sort of solved the intellectual problem, like it's kind of a dead thing right? Yeah. And the game needs, to, like, in general, game needs to reward you for, for having reached that solution. Mechanical difficulty is sort of a different beast and sort of a different brand of frustration, but this, this sort of sounds like more of a, like, really poor controls and, and a lot of, like, clumsiness makes it impossible to, like, act on the insights you gained uh, yes. in, into a puzzle. Uh, without really offering a satisfying mechanical challenge uh, on the execution side.
0: Yes, and and it's it's very clear to me that this was not kind of supposed to be a, a terribly diffi- mm-hmm. difficult game mechanically. Like I don't think it was. You know, there's some platforming, but because the the you know it, it's pretty forgiving with the platforming, uh, unless you're talking about the camera which is another entirely other story. The camera has a mind of its own that's worse than Trico. Uh, and
1: you just need to find something the camera wants to smell. Uh, yeah, basically.
0: It, yeah. <laughs> you need to trick the camera into smelling something nice, then trick Trico into smelling something nice, and then make this poor boy climb instead of walk somewhere because he just cannot, like, oh, And it's not that he's supposed to be, you know, this is not, like... He, there's nothing, you know, physically impeding him from walking. He just controls poorly. You know, that's not the that's not the story content. It's not like oh, this boy has broken legs and he can't, you know, move uh, in such a way. It's just bad controls, and it's oh, it's so frustrating. I'm getting angry just thinking about
1: yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think so. Like when we're hearing about this, I do sort of flashback to. um to black and white actually is, as probably Mm. my my example, uh, my, my go-to example of something that's just insanely frustrating.
0: Do you remember black and white? Very vaguely.
1: So incredibly vaguely. (laughs) Yeah, it was the, um, it was an early example of Peter Molyneux promising something really amazing sounding and then delivering something that didn't really like, didn't really fit the bill. Yeah. And actually, that was, that was probably the last time I sort of got suckered, right? Because, but, yeah. but the way black and white was going to work was that you had the powers of a god. And you, 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 what you did was you, you had your worshippers, and they would generate faith for you, which generated your powers. But really, as a god, you could only do so much. Uh, most of your power was actually going to be directed through this like, avatar, through this like creature. Uh, that was like your instantiation on Earth, and it like had limitless power, basically. <laughs> like so, you were really limited in what you could do. Uh, the creature was like uh, sort of self-powered, and what you had to do was teach it how you wanted it to behave uh, as as sort of the 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 god or dictator of these of these people. And the way you did that was by showing it like how to interact with things. And, uh, and also, like, putting a leash on it and directing its attention to things you were doing. So you could show it how to do spells. Um, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And the problem was that, like, when it worked, it was actually really, really cool. Like, you could teach the creature to help farmers grow their crops, for instance. Like, it was sort of... Like, it, like you, you show it uh, that you're, like creating a thunderstorm over a farmer's fields and the crops grow and the, har- the, the harvest is good. The creature sees that a few times and then it's like, okay, cool. So like when there's a field, uh, I should water it. And so it will just start casting those spells automatically. Um, alternately, you can teach it bad things like, you know, go ahead, eat that villager, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but the problem was it didn't really learn consistently Oh, no. And also your ability, like, the the sort of gestural controls the game was trying to use, uh, where you sort of, like, inscribed spells in the air with your mouse, also didn't work real well. So basically, what all you wanted to do was, was sort of teach this creature, like, do X, Y, and Z. Like, learn this behavior. Yeah. And what didn't end up happening was the creature developing lots of interesting, um, like, unintended behaviors. Like, occasionally you'd have an example of that. Like, you cast a thunderstorm... Uh, rather than just a rainstorm, and so like somebody would get electrocuted, and the creature like might just decide, I want to start casting thunderstorms, and then the villagers <laughs> starting to die. Occasionally that would happen. Most of the time, however, the creature just wouldn't learn. It would just sort of sit there and be like, I don't, I don't know what you want me to do. Uh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sit here doing nothing uh, in this field for a while. They're cool with you? Great. Oh god. And so the like whole centerpiece of the game would at times become like this really barely interactive, uh, just like lump, uh, <laughs> just doing jack. And eventually, like that starts to really cause things to break down, especially in sort of a strategically like tilted game, uh, where you're supposed to be like helping your city build up and like create your like like create more prayer power and more worshipers and maybe send your villagers and your creature out to like fight. Uh, but in practice what it turned into was just like, just imagine like a crappy demigod just parking <laughs> its fat ass on a rock somewhere. <laughs> uh, you know, refusing to help anyone. Uh, that was, that was how it worked. And that's sort of like when, whenever, like whenever you've got that, okay, so, so what you want me to do just doesn't work in this game or it doesn't work reliably. Uh, and and I think maybe that's maybe that in particular is is a hot button. It's not just when something is challenging or difficult, but when you never feel like you're getting a handle on whether you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Or whether the game is not functioning. The moment the like is this broken or am I just mistaken, the moment that becomes blurry, uh I think a game is basically host.
0: Yep. Yeah. I know I've definitely sort of encountered that a few times in the last Guardian, which has been, oh, yeah. It's it's just bad. It's it's a sort of thing about inconsistency uh, as opposed to, you know, folks always talk about Dark Souls being very difficult, but consistent, you know, routinely very consistent with sort of the way it works and the way that enemies work and the way that, you know, sort of your, your attack animations work and that sort of thing, which I would argue uh, there are occasional sprouts of, of yeah, I just said Sprouts. I meant to say Spouts. Woo! Got veggies on the mind, I guess. Uh, talking about those Dark Souls. Uh, but, th- you know, I feel like there there have been times I've gotten frustrated with those games for being like, you know, that felt cheap. I really thought yeah. I could get three hits in and it only let me get two hits in. Like, I understand, like, the the real pro-ass players are like, no, it's never inconsistent. But I I question that to some degree, at least as a as a scrub who has played, I don't know, 60 hours of Dark Souls 3 and all of Bloodborne. Like I've played some, I've played enough to know how things work, I think. And I think that consistency is kind of key in making things feel fair, even mm-hmm. if it's the tough but fair kind of, uh, you know, idea that the the sensei who is tough but always yeah. rewards your progress. Uh, one thing I keep going back to and thinking about as I'm playing The Last Guardian is something like the survival horror games of the yes. like late '90s. Yes. Uh, uh,
1: yeah. The Resident, Resident Evil Evils. One. Yes.
0: Yeah. Early Resident Evils. Early Silent Hills. Um, when those awful tank controls, and people argued to the you know to the death. I mean, not literally, but they argued and argued over like, no, it's scarier because it's clunkier. It's scarier because you're not in perfect control over what's going on. And, you know, I've always been of the opinion that, like, maybe there's some value to that. Okay, I get what you're saying. But, but really, these developers were getting away with it because <laughs> they didn't have to fine tune a control scheme that worked beautifully in every situation, because that's, a lot harder to do. And then they're kind of using that as a crutch a little bit. Like, no, no, this effectively makes it scarier if we don't work on this very much. <laughs> um, which, you know, I I don't like that stuff. I, I'd infinitely rather play something that controlled fairly or what I felt was fair. Um, I'm I'm fine being scared with the scary monsters and limited ammunition and other things about that sort of design paradigm that I think worked well and were consistent than the controls just being kind of slow and clunky and and not awesome personally.
1: Yeah, the re- like Resident Evil is an interesting case because on the one hand, like I I actually do fully agree that those imperfections that that jank. Maybe didn't make it scarier, but certainly made it more fraught, right? More intense sure. at times. Like literally like my memory of that first encounter, right, where you um you trigger the cutscene of the, the little like zombie dude chewing on oh. something. Yeah. And yep. then the camera flips and you're in that hall. And I think you can very easily like take a step back and Trigger another camera angle at which point your character model basically obscures everything. I want to <laughs> yeah. say, like, I want to say there's something like that, that that happens really early on, but that sort of interaction happens throughout that game. Uh, and and I think it's at its absolute worst in Resident Evil 1. Uh, I don't remember that being as much of an issue in Resident Evil 2, uh, but but obviously it's still still a bit of a, a little, thing. little
0: bit more open, uh, in two, <laughs> I guess, but, but yeah,
1: it's an interesting thing because I think we talked on this show about. Uh, in particular games where you can sort of shoot the scary monster, good, smooth, reliable controls are, are kind of the the enemy in some ways, because then it was just a matter of like dropping the cursor onto a zombie's forehead and pulling a trigger. You know what I mean? Like there's there's no there there there's no fear or or threat there. And I think what what all that jankiness accomplished uh doing really well was making it difficult to get your bearings and constantly making you feel, um, you know, limited and under pressure. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting case. Of, but, the, but the problem is, so it did contribute to this effect, but then there were all those times when it absolutely got you killed, when you didn't yes. really, like, deserve to be killed, right? You, you basically had to learn an encounter by rote because at a certain point, you would step over here and the, the camera would, would totally screw you how do you handle that and that's where it sort of crosses a line but it's an interesting example of like the frustration and then the particular emotional texture of that game i think are i think are inseparable
0: yeah i, I the first game is honestly it gets more of a pass in the last guardian in any regard also for being earlier and also yes. a, a time when they were still honestly figuring some of this stuff out they were still figuring 3D out in 1996 so i'm not going to like take a poo on the game uh for for that i i do get very very frustrated uh whenever i feel like something was unfair i guess i always did even as a kid i would say things like that I pressed the button, you know, that should have worked and, and got very angry about the unfairness of life, uh, you know, and something like that didn't quite work. I do think that basically the best way around that design problem is to make it like an amnesia or a, yeah. you know, alien isolation where it's like yep. shooting the scary monster isn't going to help you very much. Like you can't you can't do much about the scary monster. They're actually scary, meaning they're, you know, actually powerful and it's not you know you're going to die. Like instead of instead of you're going to die cuz you're fighting the camera more than the monster, it's the monster itself is actually all powerful. I I personally prefer that in a horror game. Uh but you know, we're if we're talking about the early like mid 90s kind of stuff, it's, you know, they they hadn't figured all that out yet, so it's cool. Um I mean, there are definitely games now though that are that are sort of mirroring that. Like there's a there's a few like indie horror games that sort of mirror that PSX old you know, crappy tank yeah. controls, horror game stuff, and it, it's really feeding off that nostalgia, and I've played a couple of them, and it's like this is interesting and i and I see where you're going for, but man, I don't know if I have the patience <laughs> to fight with the camera that much or to fight with the controls that much. um when it feels like designers have kind of solved this problem at least some in some ways of you know by by doing the amnesia thing by making you actually vulnerable as opposed to you, the player, are just annoyed with sort of the systems. Uh, so, you know, give or take a little bit. I just, I just get very annoyed when you have platforming and the camera and controls are not oh, pretty top-notch.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, for me, like, so over on three months ahead, I'm starting to take stock of what war games I want to play and everything. And I've started testing some out, and I just do not have the capacity to be patient with a lot of war games anymore. Uh, sure. Because that is a genre that in a lot of cases is mired in the 3.1 era, uh, Windows 3.1. Oh, um, okay. Where like, interfaces basically are borrowing all the design conventions from that era, and nobody has learned anything new. Uh, mm. And, and, and like, I'm sympathetic to that. A lot of times, it's the same designers uh, working on the same tools they were working on 20 years ago. They know how to make their game, they're good. they're good games within those constraints, uh, but they're not going to compare to what modern studios are, are working on. Yeah. So like, I understand those limitations, but at the same time, there are, there's a certain point where you're just fed up overcoming certain needless challenges, right? Yeah. Like, there are still war games you'll encounter that don't seem to know what to do with the right right mouse button, uh, for instance. (laughs) They're like, well, no, if you want to change what... If you want to... (laughs) perfect example is a classic issue in war games is that you click to select a unit and then right-click doesn't move it. (laughs) What you have to do is click to select the unit and then either use a hotkey or find the correct uh, button on the toolbar to go to movement mode and then you can send the unit somewhere. That's a that's a routine issue that I'm done with. You know what I mean? It's yeah. it's I do not have I do not have it in me anymore <laughs> to play a game from like the last couple of years where that's how it's it's going to behave. And I think that again goes to that overall, we like we want games to help streamline the gap between, like, thought and action. And I understand, like, interface is tough. Like, designing... Like, I understand there's a ton, a ton of work that goes into making a simple, clean, intuitive interface, right? Like, the simpler and cleaner interface looks, the more there's, like, you know, a bunch of, like, hamsters racing on the wheel behind (laughs) the scenes to power that that interface. I get it. Uh, But at the same time, like we kind of expect it now because that's how everything behaves roughly. And so when you're going back to like ASCII graphics and hotkey driven interfaces and you're asking players to do a lot with that stuff, it really creates this huge, like (laughs) this this huge like mental overhead uh, just to do simple things. And that's just, it's so tough now. It's so much tougher than it used to be.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. It's uh, it's not easy, but then again, I mean, this is also something designers are working against, which is there are now like a million things you could play. There are a million things that could scratch any itch in sort of any genre. I mean, okay, some genres more than others. Certainly some are in fashion, some are out of fashion, but you could go on Steam and, and look at thousands of things to spend your time and money on. So it's it's sort of like, I think maybe there is some pressure to kind of solve some of this stuff if you want to remain competitive sort of in, in these spaces. So, I, you know, I don't know. I, I also wanted to talk a little bit uh, about good frustrations and like mm-hmm. systems that we actually enjoy, even though they drive us oh, batty yeah. a little bit, Um, you know, going off, I, I think. Trico, like, to, to the game's credit, Trico is awesome and amazing, and interacting with this creature is, it feels like interacting with a real animal, which is awesome, you know, is somebody with a very frustrating pet, <laughs> uh, with, you know, three pets, and all of who can be frustrating at times, but especially, you know, dogs, puppies are, are tough, um, I really appreciate it, I really appreciate that it feels like this, this little big I guess um creature has a mind of its own and and has needs and wants and and likes you a lot but you're not the only thing in this world and you know protects you and 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 just feels like a real animal so I'm I'm happy to deal with the frustrations of dealing with a you know quote real animal because it, it feels more meaningful uh than just sort of dealing with like an object in a in a game and uh
1: mm-hmm.
0: totally different um but but there are systems in Dishonored that we talked about at one point, uh, systems in Dishonored too, that I find frustrating, but I still think they're really cool. Like the, the ways in which, you know, if you leave a body out, you know, if you're going yes. for a low chaos playthrough, as I am, and yes, I'm still playing the game. It's ridiculous. It's going to take me forever, but it's okay. Um, you know, if you're going for low chaos, if you're going for, you know, non-lethal and you're sort of knocking guards out and hiding them in places... Uh, they can still die because a blood fly will eat them or a rat yep. will eat them or, you know, be gentle with the corp not the corpse, sorry, be gentle with the, you know, sleeping body, body. Yeah. or it will become a corpse, basically. Um, <laughs> those things are annoying to deal with. And, you know, when I first found out or figured out that that was happening, I, I had knocked out these two guys, including a blood fly husk. And I was very nice to knock it out instead of killing it because it was actually coming at me. And, like, I let, you know, put them in the recovery position. I talked about this, I know, but, like, I got, I was, like, very gentle, put them in a nice recovery position, put them, you know, very nicely, and thought they were totally fine because I'd killed all the blood flies, but there were rats running around. The rats ate them, and I was like, what the heck? Oh, man. So it really annoyed me. It really frustrated me, but it also was like, okay, that's cool. That's actually sort of like a... You know, an internally consistent system. Yes, this is a world of a lot yeah. of dangerous things. And if you're fucking around with people and their livelihood and their safety, bad shit can happen. And it's actually kind of, you know, has a lot of sort of value in fiction mm-hmm. in the world.
1: Is that like almost, almost we're talking about like a, like <laughs> a diegetic uh, frustration? Yeah. In some ways, like, because you know, with Dishonor, you know, that's what you're signing up for. And to a degree, like, you're, you're, you want things to go according to plan, but at the same time, you kind of relish those moments where, yeah. because of the <laughs> like, dynamic way those systems are interacting, stuff goes really wrong. So like, it is frustrating that your plans were foiled, but at the same time, it's completely in line with your expectations of how this game world should work.
0: Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, that's, and that's always kind of a rad thing when a game surprises you in that way, I think.
1: To that, so this is just a little story... Um, one of my like quintessential wow they really thought of everything type moments is in the <laughs> original thief oh, yeah. um like the i want to say it's like just the second or third mission you've got to go break a buddy out of uh, a prison crag's cleft prison and it's a really i kind of hate the level cuz it's just it's a really oppressive space like it's yeah. a brilliantly designed prison and there's an aesthetic quality uh, to the uh, to the dark engine I want to say that was the what, what the looking glass engine was called the dark engine there's an aesthetic quality to that engine uh, that's all like super high contrast uh, really like dark it's a game of like really exaggerated darkness and uh, shadow but so it's a really difficult and oppressive space to be operating in and then there's all these freaking guards and I decided that I just needed to start dra- like, I needed to start draining the swamp, as it were. I needed to stop like, <laughs> just removing the guards from play, and then I just had to run to this place, and I could do it. But the problem became where, what is it, it, where was I going to stash all these guards that uh, that nobody was going to find them? And the solution I, I hit on was that if you headed out this one, uh, the, the, this one like, um, almost like rock chimney, you'd, you'd come out. Above this little stream, yeah. and uh, I was like, "Well, okay, so I'll just drop the unconscious bodies in the shallow pool, uh, and that'll be fine." So I had just this massive, um, like, unconscious body pile in this game. Like, it was I must have made that trip like twenty times with twenty different people, <laughs> uh, dropping them into this, uh, into this kind of like. Um, like, carceral toilet bowl, as it were. <laughs> it's just, like... So I keep dropping them in there. And it works pretty well. Like, eventually, there's barely any guards left in the level. I'm just sort of cruising around, looting, lo- looting the place. Uh, complete the mission. Uh, leave. And I'm expecting to get my, you know, hey, you know, non-lethal, way to go. You didn't kill anyone. <laughs> Finish the mission. You killed 27 people.
0: No! And I
1: was like, oh, my God. <laughs> they drowned
0: they drowned oh,
1: yeah and God. i was at once like I, I was at once like oh shit like <laughs> i can't believe that happened but here's the thing i had thought of it it had occurred to me <laughs> but i was like i'm sure that's not going to be an issue because this game's like a million years old and you can just throw these little rag dolls anywhere and they stay asleep so i'm sure like i'm sure they didn't cover this
0: Oh, man. And, of course,
1: they did. And so, of course, (laughs) it was was really frustrating in a way, but it was also like, ah. So, I tried to to game that system Mm -hmm. and didn't realize that, like, it had accounted for things like unconscious bodies still need to, like, respirate.
0: (laughs) That's, oh, that's really cool. That's really, really cool. And really
1: you really like i can't do it justice there were so <laughs> many sleeping guards bodies in that in that stream like it was it was a pile it was it was really unpleasant uh, was there a you...
0: little like animation of them sleeping so were they like snoring and it's like they're breathing game like, I... I see his chest rising he's breathing
1: <laughs> honestly they looked kind of dead oh no like like I can't remember if, if the game cues you that they're still alive in any way, uh once they're unconscious. But I guess I will admit to being troubled by the way they were floating in that pool. Yeah. Like did they did seem were to be all something billy a up. little bit off. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't it, it wasn't great. Um and I think some of them weighed each other down uh and held them under. So it wasn't a great like it didn't work out for anyone, really. Yeah. Uh, But least of all you. (laughs) Yeah, it did create this sort of macabre, like you know, I thought I was being really clever, and then in the fiction of the game, like Garrett uh, was 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 basically just like basically basically like exterminating an entire prison worth of guards. (laughs) (laughs) Like he was he was basically like committing an act of just like mass murder.
0: Oh man. Oh, it's so, so it good. So good shit.
1: Um, yeah. So that's that's definitely an example of <laughs> it's in that vein of like, oh, you, you you simulated that, and I didn't think you were going to, and that really, that really screws me. It's like um, I hate
0: you, but I love that you went there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh
0: man. I'm trying that's, to think. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah.
1: Just another uh, like good frustration. I go back to the original myth, uh, myth one, myth two, uh, from for for my money still Bungie's uh, best games. But did you did you play those ever?
0: I did not. Dwarves.
1: So there's a couple things about myth. Uh, one is that like myth is very much uh, a, a tactical game about like fighting armies of the undead. Uh, basically, hmm. um, it's it's it, it's pretty cool. It's it's very Lord of the Rings versus, um, like The Walking Dead. Nice. It's, it's pretty good. There's a couple things. One is that the game is kind of like, all your units are kind of weirdly sluggish, uh, for the most part. So that it feels sometimes like when your units are trying to make an escape, it feels just horrifically slow, <sighs> uh, watching them try to get away from anything. Um, And so your armies feel a little bit, like, clumsy, but it also forces everything to move at this really, like, deliberate pace. It's a game that seems to unfold almost in, like, slow motion. Uh, So even if it's very, like, clunky, it also gives you a lot of time to see things going wrong and start to react. Uh, But the other element of it is that it has a really advanced physics engine in Hmm. some ways, and, like, every object is tracked. So for for the most part, what that means is, like, you know, when you send, like, jibs flying, for instance, <laughs> uh, you know, they bounce really satisfyingly. You'll have, like, headless corpses, like, crowd surfing uh, on, on, on like, a uh, horde of zombies. But where it gets really chaotic is your dwarves throw explosive Molotov cocktails and also carry satchel charges uh, that have, like, a massive, uh, like, explosion. And the problem is the Molotov Cocktail doesn't always blow up on contact, doesn't always even detonate. Sometimes the the fuse goes out mid-flight. And sometimes it will just ricochet in weird directions. (laughs) And so the experience of using this one unit is that until you really know how to use it well, it's probably a serious danger to the enemy, a serious danger to itself, and occasionally a mortal threat to your army. (laughs) Um, And you will have things happen like uh, you'll have something happen like a dwarf throws a grenade um, into a, a mob of enemies and the grenade sort of rolls to the ground and continues burning there and waits for the rest of your army to walk over it. And then the grenade decides to go off. And <laughs> it basically your your army's basically had a mine go off under it. Uh, occasionally where it gets really unpleasant is where a dwarf uh, will just like, fumble his grenade. So you'll have <laughs> something where like, your dwarf is mixed in with your troops to like, protect him. And he'll start to pull the grenade. And as he's releasing, uh, an enemy arrow will like, hit him. And a little stun animation plays. And he drops the grenade right at his feet, and he's got a backpack full of satchel charges. <laughs> and that's the sort of thing where that can happen, and that's basically your mission. Like, from like the first moment. <laughs> you're like, done. You're, you're yeah. done. You were, you were absolutely <laughs> done. And so it's a very safe, scummy game. Uh, but the thing is, like, it all had this effect of it was frustrating, it was unpredictable, but at the same time, it became such a part of your calculations that, like, this was a game where things could go horrifically and comically wrong at any moment. (laughs) Yeah. And it made for, for a better game. And I do feel like I noticed that a lot of games tend to streamline stuff like that out these days.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a, hmm. I do love that. I do love the sort of slightly unpredictable physics stuff. Uh, it seems like there's a common theme here of like good frustrations equal unpredictability in certain ways, but, or but we also said it, but we also thought it was kind of like you're right, the hallmark it of the not, it's not unpredictability in controls, it's unpredictability in at the systems level. It feels like unpredictability in controls kind of sucks, but when systems interact in sort of surprising ways, that can be cool i'll 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 pitch this as well. I will pitch. This other idea um, that has to do with controls. There are several sort of Wii games that I really love. And I think that they did interesting things with control schemes. There's a Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword that I thought was an amazing game. Amazingly well designed. And I thought it it did cool things with its control scheme. The sort of gestural um, controls with the the control scheme were good. Unlike the, the sort of first wii zelda Mm -hmm. game where it was just play with waggling the controller this one you actually had to uh it had the wii motion plus dongle thing so you had to actually slash the sword in particular ways to kind of uh get into it but it didn't work consistently oh my god that's a theme it did for me anyway for some people they got it working because they they're wizards or something i don't know yeah Uh, but it worked consistently and it was like amazing and when it worked for me it was amazing it was really cool it was a a way of being even more sort of into the combat in a Zelda game, which has always been pretty decent, at least uh, in the uh, since Wind Waker, the combat in, in the Zelda games has been pretty, pretty good and pretty interesting. Um, maybe not the reason why I play those games, necessarily. I like the exploration a little more. I like the puzzles a little more. But, you know, the combat has always been totally decent, um, and it made the combat more interesting. But... Again, if it wasn't consistent, it sucked, and I never beat that game because of it. There, I just got to a point where I was only doing side missions because I was like, because the difficulty of the game got to a point where screwing up all the time meant actually dying. And I was screwing up all the time because, you know, the controller was just not reading every command properly. Uh, so I, I was just like, I can at least do side missions so I can keep playing the game because it's so good. And uh, Yeah. I guess to sum it all up controls need to be consistent <laughs> but if you do weird and interesting things at the systems level I'm gonna respect you game <laughs> I think that's my at least for me it's my take on it god I love that story about the oh
1: about uh, the, cor- the corpse oh, the corpse yeah. the,
0: the corpse toilet
1: yeah. of
0: thief oh just so good it's so good that I think I think it's probably about time for us to go into our weekend correspondence. But first, a brief word from our sponsor.
1: Danielle, did you ever just think about socks? Like, like really think about them?
0: Can't say that I have, Rob.
1: Neither have I. And why would I, when the good people of Bombas have done all that thinking for me? Every little thing you could want in a good sock, they provided. And every little irritation they've solved.
0: Oh, come on, Rob, their socks. How much better can they be?
1: I know, it sounds crazy. But check this out. These socks have an invisito. An invisito, Danielle. I didn't know I needed that, but it's one of those things that you experience and you realize that you can never go back. You realize that all those other socks that you thought were normal, it turns out they have the opposite of the bombus invisito. They have a visito.
0: Oh my god, I, I never thought of it like that.
1: Neither had I. And, and what about arch support?
0: What about arch support, Rob? Don't you just have arches and they do the supporting?
1: No! There's a better way. A honeycomb arch support is something you get with every pair of bombas.
0: I've been living like an animal.
1: Well, it's time to stop by going to getbombus.com weekend for 20% off your first order. Best of all, for every pair you buy, another pair is donated to a homeless shelter.
0: Wow, thanks Rob. I'm definitely going to getbombus.com weekend to get 20% off while I put my feet on the cutting edge of sock technology. Alright, it's time to dive right into our mailbag. We have a a happy holiday letter from uh, Will from Chicago. Will writes, Hi Danielle and Rob, try to keep it short and sweet this week. I've been writing about games for a while now and I'm starting to develop a portfolio. I write because it helps me develop new lenses to look at the games I play and it's fun. I love my career, but I wouldn't mind trying to get something published one day. The classic games podcast question is, how do I break into the game industry? My question's a little more specific. How does a pitch work? Is it a trimmed down, several paragraph version of your full, full article? If I were to send a pitch to, say, Waypoint or Rock Paper Shotgun, what are some do's and don'ts you've learned from your time in the industry? Love and happy holidays, Will from Chicago. Oh, man. I actually think pitching is like the least covered aspect of like when you get into writing uh for the first time pitching is like the thing that you know how to do the least as a new writer at least for me that's how it worked as somebody who didn't take any like real college writing classes i just sort of started writing right after college um you know for websites and such and it's it's a doozy i remember pitching things uh that first like month or so that were just awful garbage like just the worst garbage and it was (laughs) terrible i look back on it and i hang my head in shame uh pitching is is an art and a skill and it's something you need to develop just like your writing skills um but you know as an editor what i look for in a pitch is something that is shows your voice and shows that you have a very unique angle on something you're not just going to be like here's why Bioshock's morality system was interesting in 2007. You know, I mean, that was the cliched example years ago, even at this point. Um, it helps to kind of really read a lot of whatever publication you want to pitch and kind of know their voice and sort of show that you're interested in, you know, sort of fitting in with that voice, uh, but also that you have like a very, very, very uh, specific take on something. And usually you want to include a couple of links to your previous work so people can get a sense of like, okay, this is what this person is capable of. This is, you know, how they're doing things. But you don't want to send a full article. You want to send a couple of graphs. It's it's short. It's sweet. It says, here's why this is interesting. Not literally, but but like show, don't tell. Like tell me why something is really, really fucking fascinating. Why you're the one to write it. And, you know, a general idea of, hey, I really want to write about The Last Guardian. And X, Y, and Z, or whatever it is.
1: Yeah, I, um, I've been on both sides of this, this equation mm-hmm. for, for a while. <laughs> um, the nice thing about like freelancing is probably for the majority of my freelance career, I didn't really have to pitch very often. Um, oh, nice. Like, you, you get to a point <laughs> where the work just sort of comes to you. Uh, and that's that's a, that's a really nice nice place to be, but it does sort of make those those muscles get a little uh, a little atrophied, and it can be tough to, to sell something when you when you really have a new idea you're excited about. Uh, being on the editorial side of it, uh, there, there's a couple things. First, I want to emphasize uh, something right at the start, and this is valuable for uh, a lot of a lot of writers, professional and otherwise. Um, don't obsess over unanswered pitches. Yeah. Uh don't obsess over um don't read into silence a lot of meaning. Yes. Uh your editors are all overworked. Uh they're overstretched. <laughs> they're being asked to juggle far too many things. Yes. And your pitch, well, a, like a big important thing to you, uh is probably one of like 50 or 60 like Necessary emails that are arriving a week, mm-hmm. uh, and that's like things that absolutely have to be dealt with right away on some level. There's probably like fifty or sixty like decisions that have to be made, and probably a lot more like small ones. Uh, so, the 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 big thing I would I I would just stress is that it can be enormously discouraging when you're sitting there and thinking about the things that are out there that like nobody seems to have picked up on or 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 noticed that you've sent out there. Yeah. Um. In 99% of cases, that doesn't have anything to do with, like, the pitch you sent out. It just means that, like, probably somebody's not read it. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, that's the first thing that, that I would stress. Because uh, the other thing is, man, you, you, encounter a lot of, you encounter a lot of writers who, uh, I think, let that, let, like, non-response really get under their skin. Yeah. And then you'll get the passive aggressive follow up. Never oh. send the passive aggressive follow up. Don't, Don't ever do it because what that says is I'm a self important asshole and yep. you will regret working with me uh <laughs> in short <laughs> order the moment you have to give me back criticism. Mm-hmm. Uh so do not ever send the passive aggressive follow up. Uh you know, it's it's okay to send the nudge just like reply to your own email and say like just wanted to see if you had a, a chance to look at this. As far as as pitching goes, uh Danielle, like I agree with uh, all your advice. Um, make sure you know the outlet you're pitching to, uh, mm-hmm. so that like your pitch demonstrates an understanding of their tone. The other thing is, if you're pitching something that requires a little bit of like interviewing or investigative journalism or anything like that, uh, you need to include a brief note about like how you're actually going to achieve the goals you're setting out. How are you going to reach out to the source? How are you going to uh, communicate with this publisher because if you don't have a proven track record of being able to do that, uh, as an editor, it's going to be a, a real concern that you're going to be able to talk to the people you, you're, you're saying, you, you intend to talk to. And if that doesn't happen, is there even an article that exists anymore? Yeah. So I think if it's like a piece of journalism, there needs to be a little bit of like uh, demonstration of concrete like, forth- like planning and forethought. Uh, but as for the idea itself, yeah, make it tailor it to the outlet, um, and for sure include links to uh, your better writing, uh, even if it's just published on a personal blog.
0: Yeah, agreed.
1: All right, our next email comes from. Oh man, I'm gonna botch this location name. <laughs> uh, our next email comes. From John from Airdrie, Alberta?
0: Airdrie?
1: It couldn't be air dry. Airdrie, right? Airdrie like, AB. Mm. It couldn't be air dry. It could. It,
0: could it be air dry?
1: It doesn't seem like a thing.
0: Airdrie? Airdrie? I'm from
1: Airdrie. No. I oh, live man. in
0: Airdrie.
1: I... I'm going to say Airdrie.
0: Okay. Yeah. L- that sounds good. All right, good. John.
1: Uh, so, John from somewhere in Alberta. Hi Danielle and Rob, I wanted to ask what Overwatch's tracer from a hopefully non-shitty angle. <laughs> a month before the game, uh, game came out, I attended an orchestral performance of Video Games Live. It was fun with the exception of a trailer for Overwatch. At a video game event whose primary appeal is nostalgia, Blizzard tried to sell me on the idea of nostalgia for characters that didn't exist yet. to the game having come out and the visual and functional design of the characters goes a long way in building those personalities. Still, being a multiplayer-only shooter, the characters' personalities are somewhat limited in how much they can be fleshed out in-game. The remainder of the work is done outside the game itself either by the players or the publishers themselves. Overwatch isn't the only game with this problem. TF2 has the same problem where at least some of the game's personalities imported from outside the game via those cartoons that Valve put out, for example. Or, if you prefer, in the original version of Destiny, the story didn't really make a lot of sense unless you went onto their website and read a ton of text entries. Do you think it's a fair criticism of these games that they don't do enough to flesh out the characters you're playing while you play? And specifically for Tracer, does having Tracer's sexuality confirmed outside of the game or a casual fan of the game like myself could easily miss it, diminish this representation? Or is this my white cisgender male privilege showing? Thanks and keep it up with the great pods. Uh so I think I think it's becoming an increasing problem uh and not just in games that to a degree a lot of like fleshing out and like characterization is happening via like the marketing process. Yeah. Uh like I enjoyed Guardians of the Galaxy, but boy do I feel like that movie worked because most people who showed up had been sort of taught what to expect from these characters by, like, marketing campaigns. If you yeah. look at, like, what's actually in that movie, they're pretty scanty. You know what I mean? Like, there's, there's just not much to them. There's not much to their motivations. It's just kind of like, oh, like, you know, the raccoon guy, he's the clever, angry one. <laughs> um, I kind of feel like that's happening in in a lot of places. And multiplayer sh- shooters, for sure, more susceptible to it because, like, that's not a strong. Um, that's that's not a strong setting for like uh, for characterization. Though I say that, and I think maybe Left for Dead uh, proves me a little wrong there. Although that's a cooperative, uh, linear thing. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a I think it's a perfectly uh, valid criticism. Like I think I want to be more open to the idea that storytelling can happen not just in the one medium where the game sort of natively lives, but but lives in a bunch of places at yeah. the same time. Like I do kind of feel that if characterization like is the tree falling in the forest and a big <laughs> portion of that audience isn't around to ha- hear it, uh, it. It doesn't fully count.
0: Yeah. I, I I've actually, so there's a whole part of this that's about sort of transmedial storytelling and how transmedia storytelling is this really cool idea that has been almost entirely co-opted by marketing Uh, you know, the big example in the early 2000s was like The Matrix, and they wanted this rich and interesting story where it was like three movies and also this really cool and actually interesting uh, online game and also you know, the Animatrix, and like there are parts of that that actually work and actually do sort of flesh out the story, but because it's so tied into buying fucking movie tickets and buying comics and buying all this other stuff, because it's sort of inherently commercialized because of the the world we live in it kind of sucks in a lot of ways and this was like a a whole fucking thing right like i love the general idea of transmedia storytelling i actually i like it and think it's cool as an idea but it's it's so fraught in in a world where art is comes at a, a price and a cost and you know it's a commercial art form um but i will say this about this specific example i sort of felt uh that, you know, what they're doing with Overwatch, I, I'm, you know, this is coming, this is speculation, but I don't know if Blizzard knew that the sort of Overwatch fan community was going to be as passionate. <laughs> and I'm
1: going to guess that wasn't part of the plan.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I don't know if they were, they, they knew, they probably knew they were making appealing characters, or at least I think they probably hoped they were making appealing characters, but like, that but nobody community. nobody sat back and
1: was like, Bastion Fox.
0: Exactly. Now yeah. that's what we all talk about, right? Is who fucks who and like, you know, who's friends with who and like there's a there's a really queer and inclusive and vibrant community around this game that eat up, you know, all this stuff. And like the fact that the comic is is published for free on the official website. This wasn't like a thing you had to go buy. Um helps that along a little bit. I think it's sort of like here's supplemental material we're providing to you the fans, uh, you know, at no cost like this is not like oh you had to buy a movie ticket to to see tracer kiss a woman kind of thing like that that makes it go down a little easier for me and the fact that it's like they're kind of doing this extra stuff uh because they i think again speculation uh, but because they actually are sort of listening to the fans and the fans are are very queer and very sort of all over the place and in a good way, you know, it's a very diverse sort of fandom and they and they wanna get in on it. There's not necessarily a natural place to do this in the game, like you said, so here's a way for them to do that, to, to you know, sort of acknowledge their queer fans and, and sort of acknowledge like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if the, you know, lead character in one of the most successful games of 2016, you know, the, the sort of, uh, you know, box art character, was canonically a lesbian. Like, wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be a cool thing? Uh, And I think it's a cool thing. I think it's rad. You know, of course, I think it's really rad. I think the way that they did it was actually pretty good uh, in terms of sort of what happens in that comic. It's not like, scandalous lesbian kiss it's actually just this sort of sweet cute moment she comes home to yeah. you know her girlfriend or, or partner or wife or whatever it is you know they don't, they don't have to go into a, an entire massive backstory here they like exchange gifts it's like a christmas thing or a holiday thing they exchange gifts and then it's like this cute little kiss it's like well and also may not nice. even mean she's
1: she's she's gay could just be a british thing remember
0: <laughs> of course i mean that's what we do yeah. right it, uh, that's what they do in alberta and <laughs> no, i'm just kidding i don't know yeah. i don't know what you do in um, Alberta.
1: no and i think something else that's happening in that comic is beyond just tracer um everything about that comic i think sort of like screamed like we see you yes uh like yeah okay hey we're gonna show a comic with all the overwatch characters like doing christmas things with each other and like having relationships and it was kind of like basically validating to agree some of the direction the fans have gone with interpreting these characters. That like, yeah. you know, the same way that like I'm like, oh, just imagine if like Sombra and 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 Reaper were were hanging out making tamales, uh, you yeah. know, just just to, like they're, they're sort of s- saying something similar that like, yeah, these characters like hang out and like have friendships, and so like by all means, you know, continue with your with, with your with your shipping and your imagining them as like. Uh, a huge band of like quarrelsome friends.
0: Yeah, I, I and I like that, and like I can't, I, I can't disagree entirely with like the essential kind of like, uh, it's not really in the game, you know. Like I, you know, uh, that's fair. Like that's that's certainly fair. But I, like I said, I do think this is a more a slightly more complicated case, and because the tone felt, you know, just general sniff test to me. Right and good and inclusive, and not like I'm, we're doing this for attention um it felt like yeah this was a totally appropriate little tiny gift to kind of give to some of the fans and if you you don't care about the characters in overwatch, and some people probably don't I'm sure there's people who play this as a competitive shooter and don't uh like necessarily read the fan fiction right um you don't you don't have to engage with it, but this is an extra layer that they are sort of you know putting official art and their sort of official stamp on it and i I, I like what they did with it, you know? I, I don't disagree entirely with the arguments about it being, like, less, you know, super, you know, um, official or whatever. Um, but but I think that's okay sometimes. I think that's okay in this case, personally.
1: I just want to um, give a shout-out to something. We talked about it on a recent Three Moves Ahead, uh, this card game Duelist. Uh, but Julian Murdoch and Murdoch and I both had this weird uh, reaction because there's like these, uh, this flavor text you unlock for the cards. It doesn't exist at the, at the start, but like if you play, it, it, I don't know how it unlocks, but it does appear that as you play more of the game, more flavor text unlocks. And there are all these really like bizarrely well-written uh, entries that begin to flesh out that world. Um, and, and from a really like, impressionistic standpoint, too, it's not like a lore download. It's more like just uh, like, like a study in tone. Yeah. And it's an interesting example of like nothing about the game really supports that. Like the creatures just it's a card game. They they run around a board and they battle and they smash <laughs> into each other and eventually like one wizard is dead and the other wins. Yeah. The game doesn't support that, but at the same time like they are layering in a feeling of there being a world behind it uh via this this external stuff and I think that's I think that's pretty cool. It's like it's it's a valid way of giving a little extra depth and personality uh, to a game world that could otherwise uh, be interchangeable. I think it's very different from say the JK Rowling approach of <laughs> um, retconning inclusivity into yeah. a series where occasionally sometimes the subtext was super easy to read, yeah. uh, but, but occasionally like it, it remained pretty sub yeah. and by and large, that is a you know like it's unfortunate, and it's it's, it's a product of the era in which it was it was written perhaps, and, and some of Rowling's uh, own like own experiences in life. but in that novel it's it's a world where a lot of uh, minorities and uh like marginal uh, marginalized groups aren't explicitly represented yeah. And to then go back and say, "Well, they were there the entire time," I never said that. You know, Hermione is white. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of that's 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 kind of a different thing. Yeah, uh, that's you know, there there it's like, well, actually, there's a pretty big like narrative construction you created where you didn't get around to any of this stuff. Uh, and that's fine. It's still good. It's still fun. It just means it didn't, like, in- include... It wasn't inclusive a lot of a lot of groups. can still be a great thing. It just means it wasn't this other thing. But then to try to go back and say, well, actually... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, let me tell you about Dumbledore. It's like, yeah, <laughs> like, we read seven books. Yeah. It's like, Dumbledore's on the page. You don't get to be like... By the way, he was, like, gay the entire time.
0: <laughs> yeah. Really,
1: Really a civil rights leader for our times.
0: Yeah, it's... Honest, I've always been kind of tickled by that stuff because I just find it a little bit hilarious. Like it's it's not coming from a bad place. Like it's like, oh, she she wants to fight the good fight in some ways, and she knows she has a big platform, and like, so I don't disagree with the the place she's coming from, but it, it is a little funny. It is a little oh, bit it's, like, it's totally, okay. I'm never,
1: I'm never going to join the hate train. Uh, yeah, Cause yeah. I think to a degree, a lot of that stuff was pretty easy to read. Like people, uh, she talks about, um, I think she talked about like, uh, the werewolves being sort of a metaphor for, um, for AIDS, for like AIDS. Uh, yeah. Uh, which I even think kind of gets it wrong. Cause I know a lot of people who read it as a very clear and very effective metaphor for, um, uh, like abuse, uh, yeah. Uh, as as a child, and sort of the fears and uh, anxieties that that, attach, that 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 are attached to that. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, I think like Rowling did a very good job of creating a really cool metaphor and allegory of uh, of the Thatcher years yeah. <laughs> for kids. There you go. I, yeah, <laughs> I think that's that is noble work. Uh, but you also don't then need to like back the car up and be like, <laughs> by the way. It was super woke this whole time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's God. Oh, thanks, JK. I love you. <laughs> All right. So uh, the next letter comes from Kevin Puba em- Emeritus. Is that the term? I, I never get it right. Okay. Emeritus. See, this is me not pronouncing things correctly. Kevin- I had a lot
1: of old professors in my government department.
0: Oh, yeah, we didn't have... I went to a mm, college, so... Uh, Kevin Grampuba, emeritus of the Reno Video Game Symphony. That is quite a title, Kevin. And this is Kevin's letter. Hi, Rob and Danielle. I think it's about damn time we started teaching more about video games in K-12 curriculum. What do you think? How would you teach the ways of video games? Did you ever try to incorporate video games into your primary school classes? Thanks. Oh, I tried to incorporate video games into everything. I, (laughs) But probably, I guess, a little older that I tried to do that. Um, I remember actually a college, like early college project where I was like, oh, yes, uh, like this is embarrassing, but like, oh, the like way women are treated in games in a like gender and psychology class uh, project that I did once. Um, And like, I definitely always tried to... (laughs) shoehorn like video game and weird little videos i would shoot into every project i ever did in high school like sketches about history or some goofy thing but we would use like the music from a game and like the sound effects for a game so somebody would be on a controller in the background spamming a button for like the the sound effect of a sword hitting or whatever that was a very special memory that i've just shared with you all now um <laughs> Uh, in terms of how I would teach it, I would I would teach it just in, in a lot of the same ways as literature is taught. In terms of the storylines of games, like that's that's a, the easiest sort of approach. But I also like I really think there's a lot of value in uh, sort of. Analyzing the systems of games and sort of what they say, you know, the sort of implicit uh, mm-hmm. lessons of games, I think that's maybe one of the most interesting things for, you know, probably fairly young kids could, uh, you know, grasp a lot of the basics, you know, any grade school, you know, sixth grade and up kind of thing, uh, I think would be super useful because I'll tell you this, this is, a, this is a real shocker. Most kids I know love video games and are probably not thinking terribly critically about them yet. Uh, but, man, wouldn't that be cool if, if, like, the thing that they were really, really into was actually something that t- taught them a little bit about systems of oppression or economics or sort of the way that history will roll over in certain groups, you know, things like that. You know, of course, this is me and the lessons I want to teach in my hypothetical classroom. Uh, what about you, Rob?
1: Yeah, I think... It depends on what the objective here is. Uh, as much as I love how games can illustrate certain things, and I think they could have like, a utility in teaching certain subjects, uh, by and large, the nature of most school systems until you get to college doesn't let you get that specific, right? So like, yeah. I think uh, there's, uh, there's, like, the Take Command games are amazing at explaining why Civil War battles like, kind of take the path they often do and why there's so many uh, mistakes made on both sides. That's awesome. Uh, the problem is, in like a K-12 school, you have two days to teach the battles of the Civil War. <laughs> and then you've got to be on to uh, the end of the war and Reconstruction by Friday. You know what I mean? God. Like, they yeah. fire on Fort Sumter on Monday, and, uh, and Reconstruction is ending on Friday. And is, none of them are going to remember of any of it, like, whatsoever. Right. And, yeah. and so you don't have time uh to to inject a a a game to illustrate some of that stuff, no matter uh how how useful that could that could be uh, i don 't even know like you know i wonder in in this uh in, in this era of like common core and increasing like um uh, quantification of of educational uh attainment. I really wonder if like the movie day still exists the way it did yeah. uh, for, for me growing up, right? Like every class had like two or three movie days. Uh, you know, where just all right. We're gonna learn about the Roman Empire. Really, I'm gonna sit back and do some grading, uh, yep. and you're gonna watch uh, Spartacus. Have yep. fun!
0: And they were the uh, best days. Those it were great days, best. and you could
1: you you saw a lot of great movies. Yeah. Uh, or you or or you work or you played cards in the back or you flirted that's yep. that's how that rolled the things great. you
0: do in high school yeah
1: but i don't know if i don't know if like games are even a bigger time investment and i just don't know if uh if you have space to do that so i think where you maybe want to see more of this done is with yeah sort of like you said danielle teaching teaching games yeah. uh teaching the the logic that's baked into a lot of them um teaching kids to sort of unpack like how a game works. Like we're all taught by like third grade how fiction works. What's yeah. a climax? What's what's rising action? What's what's resolution? We're taught the basic building blocks of narrative. Um, we're never taught the basic building blocks of games, and I think that could both help people stop wasting their time on crap.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, maybe like make it less easy to slip exploitative design under the noses of kids. Yes. Uh but but then also just you know, maybe you know, people get more out of stuff if they're more literate in sort of the, the, the grammar used to construct it. Yeah.
0: Hell yeah. That's how that that's how to do it, Grand Poobah. Emer Emeritus. Emeritus God, I'm sorry. I can't say that word. It's very sad. Uh just Grand pooba, I think. All yeah. right. Uh on that note, I think it's time for us to talk about our weekend projects. So Rob... I've had a little bit of time, a little bit of time after the, you know, Christmas and New Year kind of, kind of area. Is there anything you have been enjoying particularly?
1: Um, so I'm just going to, I'll keep it simple this week. I've been, been hanging out in Boston uh, with, with my, with my girlfriend, my roommates, and we watched, um, my, my, my buddy and I got real drunk one night (laughs) and I was like, I find, I need to watch John Wick. Yeah. And John Wick is really goddamn good.
0: Fucking right. Uh,
1: And I know I'm late to the party on this, but I think what I had not understood, uh, I had not understood two things. One is that it is an incredibly New York movie. (laughs) Like, literally, every actor that you've seen in any New York shot, New York and Toronto shot, um, like, sitcom or police procedural or movie they're all in that they're all in that movie like every single like character actor from the east coast yeah. is in John Wick there's a ton <laughs> of location shooting it has you know Daniel we talked about like how much we love like things with a sense of place and time yeah and John Wick has that it yeah. feels like this really like like it feels really located uh, in in modern new york and also features just some really incredible uh, action sequences. And I think what I loved about it the most is that there aren't a lot of action movies that are doing exciting like fight choreography uh, anymore. Because a lot of them, like superhero movies, rely on CG and quick cuts to sort of conceal the limitations of of CG. And so a lot of times action movies are very disorienting and yeah. they don't want you to uh, figure out like, where things all stand in relation to each other. The important part is just to watch like things getting blown through a wall or, or guns being fired, whatever. Uh, John Wick has this... this one, one gun battle in particular is set inside this uh, nightclub slash bathhouse. Yeah. And it is just such a tour de force of like editing... Uh, choreography, um, camera work, and, like, audio mix. The entire thing just comes together so beautifully Uh, (laughs) that there's this one sequence uh, that's just, like... It it really is just, like, uh, violent poetry in motion, but nevertheless poetry in motion. And uh, so, yeah, I actually... I, I really liked it. And if you're worried that the whole... The precipitating event of the movie is a puppy getting killed. Oh, yeah. That put me off that movie for like a year. It's yeah. not as bad as you think. It's not like you're gonna have to watch a puppy get stomped before John Wick like kills a million people. <laughs> it's much more uh, tastefully handled than that. So, yeah. it's it's not a scary movie. It's not a sad movie. Uh, it's 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 a lot of fun.
0: Oh, I love John Wick. Oh, it's really, really fun. It's it's a movie I watch with my mom uh every so often and we just love it so much. My mom is a huge uh action-y um like action sci-fi, probably maybe a little bit in love with Keanu Reeves fan. So it's it's a it's a special treat every yeah. time I every time I go home. Uh if we watch I mean, I don't watch it every time we go home, but it's you know, it's one of our movies, you know. Um I was going to tell you about a book that I'm loving uh but I think I'll still be loving it in a week so I'll tell Uh-oh. you about it then. So Uh-oh. I'm going to tell you about something I hated so much but but it's an endorsement because I loved making fun of it so much. So um I watched a movie that's like for me the ultimate love to hate movie uh recently. Which yeah. is a giant critical darling right now. Everybody's saying, oh, movie of... Not everybody, but, you know, that's what the posters all say. You know, lots of prestigious best film of the year. Beautiful, wonderful. It's so great. Um, I don't know what that accent was. I watched La La Land uh, recently. And uh, I'm, I'm it, it's a very special situation because I, as part of the Writers Guild, I get... Um, screeners for movies uh, that are not uh, currently available on DVD, Blu-ray, whatever the fuck yet, but it's for, you know, Oscar consideration, award season consideration, that sort of thing. I don't determine any of these awards. It's just whatever. It's a guild thing. Um, So we put it in. And we're watching this movie, and it's this atrociously overproduced. It's very, very beautiful. It's gorgeous. Cinematography is gorgeous. It's a musical, or at least it it thinks it's a musical. The first third is a musical, and then it kind of is only sort of a musical until the end. uh, About uh, two overprivileged white people uh, who live in Los Angeles and complain about gentrification and want to be big stars in Hollywood. One is a jazz pianist. Ryan Gosling, and he looks like an overgrown 7th grader who tried to grow facial hair for the first time, uh, and he thinks he's extremely cool, and he's too good for, you know, the world, because he wants to play his very special sad jazz music and whatever. Um, And Emma Stone, who is less obnoxious uh, than he is, but still just, like, a very generic, like, girl from a small town who wants to be a movie star. And, you know, instead of... Uh, It's very much a throwback to sort of old uh, Hollywood movies about Hollywood, you know, where it was like, you know, the struggling actors or the struggling artists or whatever Mm -hmm. were all trying to make it in old Hollywood, and they're in love with Hollywood, they're in love with La La Land, uh, because of the glitz and glamour and how beautiful and wonderful it is, even though it's kind of killing them a little bit. Um, it's, It's a throwback movie to that. I can't stomach that genre anymore because I can't uh, I'm just at the point in my life where it's like Hollywood you know clearly I I love movies I'm a tremendous movie buff I like a lot of movies despite the way that they're made I like a lot of movies despite the sort of massive raging you know sexism and racism in Hollywood but I cannot for a moment sort of stand that nostalgia for, for that town and that sort of Uh, you know, that dream of like, Oh, Hollywood is so wonderful. Like it's, it's, it's like, no, it's disgusting. I like it despite itself, not because of itself. Uh, just, just personally for me watching any kind of nostalgia about Hollywood is like, makes me want to puke. I mean, I could watch something from that era. I can watch something from the fifties or the forties or even the thirties, late thirties, you know, about the era, but it's, It's hard. It's really hard for me, you know, in 2016 or 2017 to look so fondly upon something I find to be kind of terrible in a lot of ways. It also is just boring and long (laughs) without justifying being boring and long. It's about this relationship of two people I couldn't possibly care less about. I think you're supposed to find them charming. I found them both really just not interesting in the slightest. I I didn't buy either of them as an interesting person from moment one. You know, I I really tried. I tried to give it a shot. I was like, "Oh, you know, it's it's kind of making fun of a few things. Like it's it's a little tiny bit aware of of the bullshit of Hollywood because Emma Stone, her character goes on these you know, she goes on these auditions and like has to sort of it pokes fun at like White women playing every role basically in in Hollywood, and I was like, okay you're you're trying to maybe say a little thing, but then it just completely spins off of that and goes into its own like just stupid, boring direction. And for a movie that's about jazz music, I mean for like half of it is about jazz and how wonderful old jazz is, it's really white. it is so white. it is the whitest movie about jazz. Like John Legend is finally shows up in the movie for a little bit, but he's he's sort of presented as like the guy who wants to change things too much, almost like a sellout, and it's yeah. gross, and it's oh god, I hated so what, what it so era much. Is Rob,
1: this in, by the way, like what, what modern so like what years exactly?
0: Completely modern. They have iPhones, they have YouTube. Okay. Like it's. It you know, it's very so it just stylized looks
1: like a night. Na- okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha.
0: It's stylized because it's doing the throwback thing, the whole like golden age of Hollywood and the, and those, you know, the movies about the little shop girl who made it big, which is, you know, kind of what they're trying to do here, but yeah. she works at Starbucks instead. And it's, it doesn't work. I mean, for me, it just doesn't work as a movie and it doesn't work because it grosses me. the whole point of that. Nostalgia grosses me out at this point. So, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, uh, T- Todd VanderWerf over at uh, Vox, he's their culture critic, wrote yeah. a thing about how empty nostalgia dominated 2016. Uh, it's a <laughs> it's a really good po- it's a really good uh, argument that that like there's this weird fascination that pop culture has developed r- lately with like looking backwards but really uncritically. Um, so that's it's but it's an it's an interesting argument that like uh, as as the world's become more discouraging. There's been kind of a fixation with imagined better, simpler times, which is, you know, very very common. Yeah. Uh but, you know, it was sort of syncing up with world events in twenty sixteen. Uh it becomes a a a troubling trend. Uh yeah, boy, that sounds awful.
0: Yeah, I, I really hated it. Like I truly hated it. Um, which is like weird to say as an endorsement, but I sure had a lot of fun dragging it on Twitter. Like I was having a yeah. fucking blast that night. Like because you know I was, I was sitting there with my girlfriend and my friend, and I'm just like cackling at these tweets I'm making, just dunking on this movie. I was like, this is a great use of my time. Like if I had to watch this in a theater, I would be disgusted. And I would want I would just want my fucking money back. But because I got to watch this without you know. I, legally certainly but without you know having to pay for it in the comfort of my own yeah. home laughing my ass off at it i had a great time but pff, it's probably going to win best picture and that's gross and disgusting but it's yeah it really sucks sorry folks and i don't dislike musicals like i will say this like i think a good musical is wonderful i think you know, there's, there's, I like newsies a lot. You know, I, I love a lot of Disney musicals. I'm not gonna lie. I find them problematic sometimes too, but I still love like a lot of, of that output. I, musicals are great when they're done well. I think Wicked is amazing. I think Wicked is one of the best musicals of our era. So this is not coming from somebody who's like, mm, you're singing and dancing and it's stupid. Like, I think that shit is great. It just, the movie has no good content and its message is poison. So. There. But it is pretty. I will give it that. It is beautiful, beautifully shot. The editing is great. That stuff is nice. But puke on you, La La Land. Oh, I felt good. I felt really good, Rob. Good. <laughs> I think with that, on that fine note, uh, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. So this episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network.
1: You can learn more about Idle Weekend at IdleWeekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at IdleWeekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at IdleWeekend.
0: We want to thank you so much for listening and encourage you, if you have a moment, to uh, go ahead and rate us on iTunes and go ahead and tell those people in your life about us. It helps us so, so much. And uh, you know, you can talk to your aunt, you can talk to your friends, you can talk to your friend on the couch that you're making fun of La La Land with. Whoever it is, it's all good. But that word of mouth helps us so much. We really, really, really appreciate it. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of idle weekends.